Hello, everyone. This is episode 16 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Arnold Kling. So Arnold, I've been reading your blog for a very long time. I, I would say that your blog uh, compares most readily to Tyler Cowen. Um, you, you guys both have very market-friendly policies relative to a lot of academia. Um, you both have a huge volume of content, very, very consistent posting and extremely high quality. Well, thank you. It's good to be compared to him. So uh, I've been reading your blog every day recently, and uh, I was quite entertained by your recent, your recent piece suggesting that for a lot of people, lockdown is not so unpleasant. You worry that perhaps lockdown is is uh, too appealing. Um, that really, I, I, no, I don't think that's really the, the thrust of it. Uh, the thrust of it is that, um, well, it, it's a complicated issue. So you have a health issue. You know, we, we have, have a, a problem with a pandemic and we have an economic issue that's interlinked with that. Um, so the, and I think people have a hard time facing up to each one individually and to how they're linked up. So the problem with the, that people have with the health issue is that, um, your instinct when you hear about the virus is, if I were to ask you the question, when would you like to get the virus? And most people say, oh, well, never. I don't want to get a virus. Uh, it's dangerous. Um, but in fact, it probably would be better for some individuals and for society if actually if some people got it sooner rather than later. That is, if you knew that you could get a, a, only a mild case, which some people are young enough perhaps to be confident that that would be true, and they're not perfectly confident, unfortunately. Uh, but if, if you could get it sooner, it would be better just because the option of never getting the virus uh, is just not it's just not realistic. So, uh, you know, if, if I want to shelter in place for years waiting for a vaccine, I guess maybe you know a few people can do that, but not everyone can do that. And that that was kind of one of the main points I was trying to get across. In the post is that no matter how much you as an individual would like to shelter yourself away so that you have almost no chance of ever getting the virus somebody out there has to make your food and deliver it to you and and so on so um, so it's more of a choice of when to get it as opposed to getting it or not and that's a very difficult thing to for people to face so that that was kind of that's one issue where I think it's, it's hard to get people to accept that reality. Um, so people on the right want to deny that the virus matters. Oh, it's just the flu, you know, get over it. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's realistic. I think the, the fears of it, uh, especially for old people, are, are certainly legitimate. But other people seem to want to act as if the lockdown is a cure or a preve total preventative. And all it does is it delays getting the virus and we may be delaying it for the wrong people. 
so again, it's a complicated issue. It's hard to get people to think about. And then the other thing that I was complaining about is that people take seem to think that no matter how much economic activity is curtailed, they can be made whole by the government writing them a check. And that's what I call this sort of lockdown socialism mentality that, oh, don't worry about it. Uh, the government's going to write a check, so you don't have to, um, you know, so we can stay locked down for a long time and not face the consequences. And that that struck me as unrealistic. It, 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 it means you have to, um, yeah, I, a more realistic thing, for example, would be to say, okay, we're going to give people relief who are going to be really harmed by the crisis, but we're going to raise taxes on everybody else to pay for it. That would be realistic. Uh, well, what's not realistic is to pretend that that these checks just come like you know from some magical source, and that none of us uh, has to pay for the relief that people are going to get. Anyway, so that's some background. So um, I realized that I skipped um, a lot of the, the preamble. I, I, wanted, I want you to take us back to early in your career. Um, I, might, I might not get this right, but basically uh, when you were a freshman at Swarthmore, you had a teacher in introductory macroeconomics who was inspiring and that led you to, as I gather, focus on economics at Swarthmore and then, and then get, get a job uh, in economics where it, this is reading between the lines in some of your work, but uh, reading between the lines, you, you gathered that economic forecasting is a perilous activity and you yeah. continued <clears throat> that doubt to uh, your doctoral training at MIT, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so maybe you could you could bring us yeah, through. Well, no, I think that that's helpful. The um, <clears throat> you know one of my uh, biases in the you know in the current situation has been to belittle the mo the forecasting models used uh, in the virus crisis. And you're right, that's like a, a, over 40 years I've spent with uh, looking at computer models. Uh, and in, the, in this case, it was macroeconomic models, models to forecast unemployment and inflation and so on. And I just saw at a very early age how uh, deceptive and self-deceptive those models were. They, um, um, they didn't capture the complexity. They were very sensitive to errors in data. And uh, I think they did more harm than good. And I think uh, in some ways the same is true of the models that people are, a lot of people are using uh, for the virus crisis today. Now, if I'm, if I'm recalling, uh, um, you... You were critical of some of the early projections, some of the public statements from Fauci and others, because they were putting a, a fairly tight range on expected deaths. And, and you thought that, that they were 
that that was implying a tight range of of R naught, and that was somewhat unknowable at the time. Yeah, well, I <laughs> one of my many frustrations, and, and I, I can commit this mistake myself, is that people talk about the situation as if there were like just a few parameters describing the database, describing the virus. So R naught is an example. That's supposed to be the rate at which you infect other people if you get it. And, you know, so everyone, inf you know, the, the original estimate was, you know, everyone in infects exactly 2.5 people. Well, we know that's, you know, that, first of all, that's not impossible. I can't infect two and a half people exactly. But it turns out, I think, that some people infect dozens of others and some people don't infect anybody. So it's a very, um, so just describing it in those terms, in that are not terms is wrong. Even more troubling is people talk about the death rate. And I, I've been guilty of this myself, but uh, it's clearly, there's no such thing as the death rate from this. Uh, old people clearly die at a higher rate. People with you know, different underlying conditions die at a different rate. Um, so it's uh, it's extremely complex, and we have a lot of unanswered questions. And just throwing a couple of simple things into a model uh, and making some simple assumptions, and then having a computer spit out something to five decimal places doesn't get you anywhere. Now, back when Dr. Fauci made his forecast that there would be a, between 100,000 and 240,000 deaths, my complaint at that point was that the rate of deaths was doubling every three days. And, for, and to sort of fall within that 100,000 to 240,000 range, it would have to double from the point he said that somewhere between five and six times. If it doubled any less than five, you'd fall under the range any more than six over. So it was just, based on that, it was just impossible to believe that you could forecast with any kind of any kind of accuracy like that and other people have since noticed that you know when when the models produce a 95 percent confidence interval then the results are out of it out of that confidence interval more than half the time which is you know an absurdity if, if you really believe that that they were that the confidence interval is correct so take me uh, to your training at at MIT. Um, what what was your what was your specialty there, and um, did you did you desire at the time to do research economics, or did you know early on that that you were a bit iconoclastic? Um, mostly, I would have expected to end up doing mainstream economics. Um, I was skeptical of the extreme mathematics, the, the belief in mathematics. Uh, a friend and I would joke about the MIT transform, the belief that some, you know, that, the, that if you characterize the economy with a sufficiently complicated equation, that you would somehow gain the great insight that would allow you to be you know, to be a successful economist this 
the belief that you know just the more mathematically complex you wrote things down, the better you were as an economist was really kind of implicit there. And so I, I did rebel against that. But otherwise, uh, I was interested primarily in macroeconomics, that is the you know, determinants of inflation, unemployment, and so on, um, and thought I would end up, and did think I would end up doing research. The, the job market in 1980 was not terribly good. I think uh, it sort of reminds me a little bit about what I think the uh, a new PhD is facing now, which is that all of a sudden, you know, hiring at universities is probably going to dry up. And 1980 was kind of a period where, uh, because the price of oil was so high, the uh, universities on the East and West Coast weren't, weren't doing any hiring. Uh, so I didn't. So I ended up uh, working at the Fed, which is actually a you know kind of a lucky place to be able to land a job at that time because 1980 was a tough time. So the the mathematical orientation of the economics profession. Do you think uh, Paul Samuelson was the key figure in that change, or do you think it was going to happen anyway? Um, I think. Generally, I think th things are going to happen anyway, but uh, he certainly played a very big role, and MIT in general played a big role, and World War II played a role. Um, World War II, we had a lot of central planning and a lot of central planning issues. You know, do you build more tanks or more airplanes? Do you send them to the European theater or to the Japanese theater? And the military uh, began to look to sort of, I mean, that, 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 those are economic problems. They're al resource allocation problems from a central point, planner's point of view. And so they put a lot of money into the MIT economics department, basically built it up from nothing because the MIT economists were answering those questions and they were using, doing that using mathematical models it was called uh, linear programming was was the main one so so samuelson he he did have uh an incredible influence on undergraduate economics education because for a while his yes. his textbook was selling a couple million copies a year or something insane like that um, and as you point out in, in your book, Specialization in Trade, um, an odd thing happens in the teaching of economics where microeconomics has uh, axiomatic principles. You start with a, a number of assumptions which, which can be questioned, but, but the idea is that, that from these principles, you get the theory of the consumer, the theory of the firm, and you you fill textbooks with first principles and, and and microeconomics has had a lot of explanatory power in a wide variety of settings um, from those from those first principles and then with macroeconomics um, if you're taking say introductory macroeconomics to this day the textbooks sort of throw the micro foundations out the window and have this sort of 
convoluted uh, Keynesian aggregate supply, aggregate demand orientation. Yeah, it's two different worlds. Uh, in microeconomics, the story is we have uh, unlimited wants and limited resources. And the problem is how to get the most out of to satisfaction of our wants out of those limited resources. In macroeconomics, we say there's a shortfall of demand. It's like there's, there's too many resources and not, and not enough wants. It, it's just completely reversed. And no one, and, and the odd thing is no one tries to reconcile those two. They just say, well, you know, here's micro and here's macro. And they, they don't even ask you to notice the difference and try to explain why, uh, why they're different. Um, so it's, a, it's kind of bizarre. If, if, you, if you recall, um, there was a textbook that was making some traction. There was uh, Josh Barrow's macroeconomics textbook that... It wouldn't that, be Josh Barrow, would it? It would be uh, Robert Barrow, I would assume. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry, Robert Barrow. It's been too long. Um, Robert Barrow had a macroeconomics textbook where chapter one is like the Robinson Crusoe model, and he's, he's trying to build macroeconomics from first principles a little bit more of a market orientation and it had a bit of attraction for a while but then then sort of fell away yeah um yeah there, there have been different uh attempts to deal with macro i think barrows i think fails for the same re in some ways the same reason that the Samuelson approach fails, that the, the idea is to reduce the economy almost to like a single factory and a single individual. I mean, it's almost absurd that, that you know, you, there's one person who's the consumer, the entrepreneur, the worker, um, <laughs> and, who, and who, you know, runs the factory. And it's all one factory, and it's a, the decision of you know well, or how much output are we going to produce? And uh, in Keynesian macroeconomics, the, that decision comes from aggregate demand. The aggregate demand tells you how much you can sell. Uh, in other versions, uh, there's some uh, comparison of the future with the present. I won't get into the ideas there. I, my view, as, as you know from uh, reading the book, is that the, the way you can reconcile microeconomics with macroeconomics is that uh, in, in both of them, we have very complicated patterns of specialization and trade. So, you know, if you look around at the things in your office, you know, millions of people had to cooperate in some sense to produce all those. Uh, and so there's just this tremendous amount of specialization and a very complex way of creating all these goods. So I call the, the result patterns of specialization and trade. And the macro story is that sometimes these patterns break down. They, be, they, don't be, they aren't sustainable anymore. So example, a good example right now would be uh, international uh, airline travel. You know, that's gone, you know, that's collapsed. 
because that's not a sustainable pattern of trade right now. And so um, that would be how I would explain unemployment. It's not that we have this one factory and all of a sudden demand fell off. It's that the demand for certain things has fallen off and we haven't uh, real, haven't been able to reallocate people to things that people want it want. So there's less demand now for international air travel. There's more demand for uh, various forms of medical equipment. Uh, at some point, the economy has to reallocate people uh, away from things where there's less demand and toward things where there's more demand. And your view there um, is that even if the virus turns out to have a, a more benign trajectory than, than currently expected, the unemployment picture is going to take a long time to solve because uh, getting getting firms matched with workers again, and you do think there, there will have to be that matching because there, there is going to be a reorientation of patterns is going to take a long time. Is that right? Yes, exactly. That, uh, first of all, I think it'll take a long time for people to kind of get over their fears of certain things. So, you know, fear of going on a cruise ship, fear of international travel, uh, secondly, people have all of a sudden developed new habits. Look at what we're doing now. Uh, we're using software that uh, you know, most people hadn't even heard of uh, before this crisis. Now lots of people are using it. So going forward, when businesses are thinking about sending workers for training or for conferences, the first question that they're going to ask is, well, could we just, could they just uh, connect over the internet, you know, using Zoom or whatever. Uh, so not every conference that that people would have gone to a year ago, and not every training program that people would have sent their employees to a year ago, is going to exist going forward. Some of them are going to be replaced by this. Um, that so that's one reason things are going to change is that certain trends are going to accelerate. And another reason is, unfortunately, we've been running a very fragile economy. Uh, it, both households and businesses have not had much in reserve. They've been running very high debt loads. Uh, so, for example, airlines, you, know, you can imagine a world in which an air, airline could survive two or three months of low demand, but not if that airline is loaded up on debt to pay for its airplanes, and so it's facing interest charges every month. Uh, so we could run differently. Again, we, we could imagine a world in which households could uh, be laid off for a few months and still be okay and pay their rent and pay their mortgages. And then when they go back to work in a few months, they'll, they'll be in good shape. We could imagine that world, but that's not the world that we've evolved to. We've evolved to a, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, again, a high leverage world where people have a lot of debt and uh, not much in savings, not much of a cushion. Um, so a big reason why a lot of businesses are going to go under and why, uh, you know, 
people are going to miss rent payments and mortgage payments is that we've been running a very fragile economy. So that, so that means a couple of things going forward. One is that a lot of businesses will, uh, will go out of business that wouldn't have had to had we been less fragile. And that will require a, a lot of adaptation and change. And the other thing is that somehow going forward, I think people are gonna to have to be given the incentive to change their behavior a bit and for households to build up more saving and for businesses to build up more reserves. And that'll change the way people operate. So for a variety of reasons, I don't think we're gonna go back to quote unquote normal as of January of this year. So I have a lot of questions from what you've just said. I'm gonna stick them under the rubric of financial markets and come, come back to that. I wanna stick with unemployment for a second. Um, so with unemployment in general, as part of this matching that goes on and this intense specialization, um, you have constantly uh, workers becoming unemployed either because their skill sets are no longer necessary based on technological change, let's say, um, or they just have something idiosyncratic going on in their life, like they want to move or what have you, uh, their business fails, what have you. And, and then on the other side, you have new roles popping up where there is demand and, and you have matching new employees with new firms. In a given month in a normal economic cycle, you might have a rough matching of the employees that are losing their jobs and the employees that are finding new jobs. Just numbers, that's a couple million per each way. It's, per it's four, it, it, the typical number is four million a month. In a, a typical month, four million people gain jobs, close to 4 million people lose jobs. The net difference of that is about, let's say 150,000 know, in, in you know, over the last several years during a recovery, that, that net difference has been a gain of about 150,000 jobs a month. Uh, but that's a, that net is very small relative to all the churning that's going on. It's about 4 million a month. So, so if, the, the job loss that we've seen in the last three weeks was the result of something other than COVID. Best case scenario, it would take like a decade to, to regain those jobs because it's about the same number of jobs that we've, we've added since the financial crisis. So it would take really? to, get, to possibly get unemployment back, it would take like a decade, but this is, this is a, a slightly different situation because we've had this this sudden yeah. stop and we might expect that some some jobs can just restart a large number well yeah i don't know uh i don't know how many will restart it's just it uh another thing that this crisis seems to have hit us at is is maybe a particularly fragile point where people were opt operating very optimistically so you read that, you know, for example, newspapers are on the verge of huge layoffs. Well, newspapers have been in trouble for a long time, but they've been kind of 
treading water or levitating based on advertising online. And that's, I think that's always been a fragile model. I've always questioned that. Um, so I think that's another case where a lot of what's going on is trends that things that would have happened gradually over the next decade are going to happen suddenly. Uh, and the sudden losses in principle, they might be offset by more rapid gains. That is, you know, take education, for example. Uh, there are a lot of people who probably have skills that would be useful in online education. And they may not have nothing to do with teaching. They may have to do with, you know, setting up, uh, you know, computer systems and working on computer systems or, uh, doing grading or other things, you know, not, things other than, than just sort of, you know, talking to people in a class. Um, probably what would have happened without this crisis is over the next 10 years, education would have evolved to increase those kinds of, um, those kinds of activities and have more people doing that kind of work. Now that's probably going to happen a lot more quickly. Maybe over the next few years, colleges and even uh, uh, K to 12 schools will will hire new people to do diff perform different functions. But uh, it may not be the existing colleges who may be too heavily tied into old formulas and to have too much legacy uh, staff to uh, to survive this. So on this topic of fragility, I find it very interesting that um, state and local governments have long had fragile finances. And this crisis, I think there's an interesting dynamic where people that, and institutions that were in trouble anyway have an incentive, a strange incentive to play up the crisis and, and then yell mercy we had to do it the federal government demanded it i i see it i i see it as a special danger for uh state and local governments yeah i agree i think that 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 a lot of nonprofits that have been running with excess staff state and local governments that have been uh you know not funding their pensions and running with excess uh staff and maybe overpaying people uh, and, you know, for-profit businesses that maybe have been a little bit lax on controlling costs, all of a sudden this crisis, this situation hits and everybody tightens up. So you have, you know, the classic example of Harvard laying off like cafeteria workers and accepting money from the CARES Act, uh, even though they've got this multi-billion dollar endowment. So everybody is using this as a time to, uh, you know, kind of tighten, tighten up their purse strings. And as you say, the state and local governments are doing that. And, you know, whereas a sensible thing for them to do would have been to use the economic good times that we've had over the last few years to build up reserves, to run surpluses, and to build up reserves in case something like this happened. But of course, they didn't do that. And I think with state and local governments, there's, there's the danger now that they will continue the lockdown and use it as a, 
as a time to sort of negotiate with the federal government for a bailout? Well, I'm not sure how they feel about that. I think, I mean, Tyler's view is that if anything, they might have to let, you know, let the lockdown go sooner because they're starving for their sales tax revenue. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that one turns out. But the, um, but what you're pointing to is the general fragility that uh, because nobody was running with enough reserves, all sorts of industries and, and sectors of the economy that need not have been directly affected by the crisis are being affected because just a, a little bit of a shortfall for a couple of months is something they can't survive. And so it just all, it, it kind of feeds on itself. So in, in your book, uh, Specialization in Trade, um, I noticed that relative to most economists, you have an extreme humility with regard to prediction, which we, we hinted at. So I want, I want you to kind of delve into that topic a bit, how you developed an extreme humility with regard to prediction. And a, there's a somewhat related humility that's evidenced as well in a, a humility about what we understand as a discipline and what we don't. So for instance, in the chapter on inflation, you're, you're very forward with saying that there's a lot that the discipline just doesn't understand. Even though this is a crucial topic in macroeconomics, there's, there's a lot we just don't know. Yeah. Um, well, I think the humility on forecasting goes back to you know, my very first experience with macroeconomic models. I mean, so, so you, you know, at that age and, you know, when I'm an undergraduate and then my first job out of college, you're a research assistant. And as a research assistant, <laughs> you work with the code in the models and you are instructed by your superiors to run simulations and to uh, look at the results. So in some sense, I knew, because I had to bury myself in the code, I knew more about these models than even the economists who were telling me to run the simulations. And uh, you could, and I, I could see more of the results and how sensitive they were to things that uh, had nothing to do with, you know, high-level macroeconomic theory. And so I just saw firsthand that as forecasting tools, they were not worth anything. And people and the professional macroeconomic forecasters were not using them as forecasting tools. They were using them as tools to present the forecasts that they were creating more out of gut feel. So, um, yeah, so that's sort of my <laughs> history of becoming skeptical on forecasting. And then, as you say, I, I'm skeptical about what economists actually know. The, the, uh, the economy is so complex uh, that the you know, I, I believe the, the, supply, the law of supply and demand is reliable. Uh, I believe that incentives generally do, uh, do matter, but the attempt to be more sophisticated and more mathematically precise, I think, fails because you, you assume away too many of the things that matter in the real world, in particular the, the 
vast specialization in the um, just the, the economy is just way more complex there there than than we can appreciate I think you're seeing again seeing some of that now uh, as people are discovering that shortages are occurring in various uh, goods that they they never anticipated because the the economy is more complex than people uh, people can grasp now now with regard to inflation um, your book is it is especially careful there and suggesting that we really know very little about the inflationary dynamic right i'm I take a view that is very heterodox the The orthodox view is that uh, inflation is something that the central bank can fine tune with the amount of money that it prints but uh, I actually think that inflate that people badly need the uh, social norms about prices. They need to know that, well, if I accept this salary, then I will be able to buy this much food and this much shelter and so on uh, a month from now. So people get prefer a habit of approximately zero inflation, which is, you know, what we have you know, we, we've had, you know, healthcare prices steadily rising, college tuition steadily rising. People expect computer prices to fall. People fall into habits about what they expect and, uh, you know, based on past experience and they expect past experience to continue. And that, to me, that's the main dynamic of prices. It's not like if we woke up tomorrow and there was a 10% increase in the money supply that immediately all prices would go up 10%, which is what happens in these models. Uh, my, so, you know, why isn't that true? Why, why isn't it true that, the, that every time the Fed raises the money supply by 10%, prices go up by 10%? And my answer to that is that the money supply that the Fed controls is not the money that people use to make transactions. So if you think about how you actually pay for things, most of the things you pay for, you don't pay for with uh, currency, certainly. You pay for them with credit cards. Uh, some things you pay by check. But um, there are all sorts of ways people conduct transactions. Uh, so we can't, uh, so the, the theory that you can, precisely fine-tune inflation by fine-tuning the quantity of money assumes that what the Fed prints as money is exactly what people use to make transactions, and that's just not true. Um, my best guess about inflation is that we, uh, we fall into uh, norms and social habits and beliefs about inflation and those, uh, and and so we'll be in a tip like recently we've been in a regime of low general inflation where we, you know, we expect the price trends from the past to continue in the future. Uh, when something jarring happens, then we change our beliefs. And I also believe that the government does have the ability to create very high inflation or maybe hyperinflation. 
by uh, not paying not paying for its spending with either taxing or borrowing, but by um, really going all out to print money, which I think is what we're doing now. So as humble as I am about forecasting, I think we're in for uh, at least a 1970s style inflation over the next several years and maybe something worse. Empirically, um, it does seem to be the case that the percent of government expenditure that's paid for by tax revenue is probably the most important thing that's predicting inflation. There's a pretty good book, uh, Peter Bernholz, Monetary Regimes and Inflation, where he, where he looks at all the correlates and he finds, he finds that uh, that is the most important variable. And I, I believe there's a, a bit of a, a tipping point that occurs in his work that suggests that when less than 60% of expenditure is paid for by taxation, you, you run a strong risk of lurching into uh, high, very high rates of inflation. Um, so, so you say that the, that the money supply that the Fed creates is not what we're using for transactions. And, and, and some of your work, you go as far as to say that the, that the Fed can be viewed as a, as a, another bank, the most important yeah. of the banks, but, but, but another bank. Now, the money they create is used directly to buy financial assets in some cases. So do we agree that they are maybe inflating the prices of financial assets? Well, I think uh, a lot of what we call monetary policy and financial regulation is the government allocating capital, uh, particularly for its own uses. Uh, but, but its own uses are its own preferred uses. And that's what I, I sort of see the Fed up to. Uh, the Fed traditionally has only bought treasury securities, which is a way of allocating capital to the, you know, to the government. Um, it is now stepping into municipal bond markets and maybe uh, commercial paper markets. And so it, it, it's becoming the, uh, a giant uh, taking on a giant role in capital allocation. I think, you know, this is almost socialism by definition, if you have the, uh, the central bank involved in, in all the credit markets. Uh, and that's very new. I mean, that's just within the last few months that they've stepped into even more credit markets. Um, but yeah, but, but, but if we go back a few years, but uh, certainly before 2008, I would have said, well, the Central bank, it's just a bank. Imagine Citicorp saying, oh, we can control nominal GDP or we can call inflation. You'd say, no, you're just one bank. And that's the way I would have suggested thinking about the Fed until first the financial crisis when they took on a, a much bigger balance sheet. And then now where they're like, you know, going forward, uh, going to be responsible for all the credit in the whole economy. No, they're, they're, they're big enough now that uh, they can cause a lot of inflation. I mean, before I would have said no, but now I would say yes. So to risk summarizing some of your views too much, um, you think the unemployment that's been created by COVID is likely to last longer than most people expect. You think 
that the policies that the Fed is engaging in and probably more importantly, the high rate of deficit spending uh, is likely to be inflationary. Um, and in a, in a recent post, you, you suggest that the outlook for uh, equity markets might not be too favorable. You don't come out and say that, but you. Yeah, no, I'll come out and say that. I, I, you know, my line on the efficient markets hypothesis is that I act as if it's true, although I don't really believe it. And I act if it's, if, as if it's true because I think maybe the markets can be stupid, but I can be stupider. So I'm not going to try to outguess the market you know, 99% of the time. But if you, but right now, uh, if I were speculating, I would be buying put options on the stock market. I just don't see how you can go through, have the kind of economic disruption that we're having and are going to have and have the stock market only be down 15% from its peak or whatever it is. Um, it, I really don't understand it. Um, so putting those... I mean, I, I see my outlook for the economy, best case is we'll have a decade like the 1970s. Okay, and that, if you go back to the history and see what happened, what your your stock market did over that decade, you wouldn't come, you wouldn't come cl close to owning stocks right now. And I think that's kind of a best case scenario. Uh, we could get worse inflation or conceivably we could get worse unemployment than we did in the 70s so um anyway that i i i you i am typically humble about making projections and you can take what i'm saying with a grain of salt but that's 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 my outlook so since since the inflation expectation in markets currently, as evidenced by tips, securities, or bond prices, is not currently expecting high rates of inflation. Right. Um, you might think that equities would be a reasonable place if you were expecting a, a lot of inflation. There is some debate about how equities perform. In yeah, I, I, in theory, if if your if your stocks are uh, if you think of them as hard assets you would say, well, I'll, I'll run to them if there's inflation. I just remember the 70s episode where they, they performed so poorly. Um, and I'm also, I also worry that they, I, I think I'm more worried that the real economic dislocation will be a problem. The one scenario that I can think of that would be good for stocks is the possibility that suppose you're, uh, a big corporation and every small business that competes with you gets wiped out. So you're a fast food franchiser or you're, you're a restaurant franchiser and every mom and pop restaurant goes out of business. That might be good for your stock. Or you're Amazon and every retailer, every brick and mortar retailer goes out of business. Well, that might be good for your stock. So I can imagine that kind of world in which the publicly traded corporations do well because everyone else does so badly. Uh, but otherwise, I think if you know if you if you thought of investing in the 
the stock market is investing in the economy as a whole, I would think of it as, as being a very dicey proposition for the next few years. So you would think you could do better in terms of predict, predicting, protecting against inflation and you should sort of focus on, on those avenues and the stock yeah, market is probably not yeah, if, reliable. Yeah, if I had a hedge fund, I would just short, you know, regular nominal treasuries and buy the index ones and just wait for the, the inflation to hit. I mean, you know, we have less production, less people working in, you know, producing goods and services and we have this huge deficit spending. Uh, it seems to me almost arithmetically impossible not for prices not to go up relative to that. Yeah, I, I, I can't, uh, I can't argue with that. It's, I guess it's one of those things that's been a bad bet for so long that people, <laughs> people shy away from it, but it, it does seem compelling. So um, in your book, you have an appendix on the 2008 crisis. You had a front row seat to, to housing policy. Um, the issues of the last crisis don't seem so relevant for this crisis, but there do seem to be some parallels of, uh, mixing up market signals as a result of government policy, which, which will have probably some unintended consequences. I'm wondering if you could, you could take us through, uh, your seat in 2008 and see, and maybe suggest parallels to the present? Well, one parallel is that you had a much wider impact than might have been necessary because of fragility, particularly in the financial sector. If you think of the 2008, what was the fundamental problem? The fundamental problem was that house prices got a little out of hand and then they went down and so you had problems in the housing market. But housing is not such a big sector of the economy that you would expect to throw uh, this, have this gigantic monkey wrench thrown in the economy. But the financing of housing was so fragile with these uh, exotic securities that the financial sector you know, was just on the brink of total collapse. Uh, and that, you know, that is sort of what created the crisis. So there was this, in some sense, a lot of moral hazard with uh, many financial firms, including Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, operating on privatized profits and socialized risks. And supposedly we learned the lesson in 2008 that we were not going to do that again and that we were going to make uh, banks hold more capital and so on. And now here we are today, and instead of being able to say, well, the, we don't have to worry about the banks because they, um, they, they learned their lesson, they're holding enough capital, we're saying, oh my gosh, we gotta bail them out again. Um, you know, we, out of 2008, one of the things that we said was we we're gonna force banks to be able to pass stress tests. Well, we're having a stress test right now. Are they passing it? No. So the um, 
some so we have this desire in the middle of a crisis always to do a bailout to avoid the pain and then afterward we look back and we say ooh maybe we created some moral hazard maybe people ought to be building up reserves instead and not running their businesses and their households in such a fragile manner but we never go about changing the incentives to do that and so we get fragility again and then the next shock hits and then we get bailouts again and we get this seemingly endless cycle of uh, you know sort of people thinking that they're doing well when times are good not not building up enough uh, reserves and then begging for bailouts when a shock hits and then we can't resist giving them bailouts and it's just getting into that endless cycle so the the financialization that you're that you're speaking of um there does seem to be a certain cynicism in the way that people uh almost anticipate the the bailout and and strategize uh in that in that regard like some of the some some of the leverage buyout strategies where you where you buy the company lever it up take out all the cash and then and then run it fragile and and cry when it doesn't go well uh we've we've sort of done that for the whole economy um and uh i guess there's a certain cynicism in the way that that it's done now yeah, and you know the the term that the term of art is moral hazard that people expect to reward get privatized profits and so, socialized risks and we as long and it seems like we can't resist uh provide fulfilling those expectations and that's i think that is going to be a big challenge going forward is how can we uh not do that um so it, and it's uh you know, I think in some sense, the Tea Party and the Occupy Wall Street movements emerged after the 2008 crisis as people had a kind of a gut feeling that uh, the people who had uh, privatized the profits were, had gotten away with socializing the risks. And I think it wouldn't surprise me to see some kind of, that kind of rebellion break out again. Yeah, I could easily see the same. Um especially because in this crisis you had an interesting phenomenon where the financial markets were panicking at a time where the the models were suggesting a huge number of deaths and uh, basically a health catastrophe in the u.s where hospitals were overrun and so forth at that time the financial markets were panicking the Fed acted in response and Congress acted in response. They acted in a very, very big way. And then we realized that we had overreacted in an important sense. The models about health outcomes were wrong. Uh, we, we did our best to project what was coming, but we were simply wrong. We were too pessimistic. And 
the financial markets were able to walk back. They were able to change expectations and reprice. But the Fed action and the Congress action, that's stuck. And now they are, in a sense, uh, committed to what they've done and defending what they've done. But they were acting in an environment that is, that is different. Financial, so so I, I believe there's a real danger that, that um, because the health outcomes aren't as bad as we expected they might be, there's a possibility that we quickly rebound in financial markets because they've been juiced up by monetary and fiscal policy. And then I could see a, a, a devastating political reaction because people will, will think to themselves, I can't believe we did this again. I can't believe in, in the face of a crisis, we bailed out the wealthiest people in our population and, and left everyone else stranded. Especially when, if you have a lot of people who are unemployed and a lot of, and, and, you know, unlike the 2008 crisis, you know, huge numbers of small businesses going out of business. What are these people going to do? Uh, are they going to, you know, uh, they're going to pick up pitchforks. I guess uh, that's going to be the attitude. Um, yeah. So in my scenario, in my one, scenario where I think the stock market does okay, that is, you know, it feeds on the carcass of all the, uh, all the small business competitors going out of business. Um, I don't think the country survives that. You know, I, I don't think, you, you can't put uh, every small entrepreneur out of business, have the, uh, the, the large corporations fat and happy and have a uh, peaceful society. So I, I just want to play uh, devil's advocate because I, I really don't believe uh, in universal basic income. I, I can't say it. That might be too strong of a statement. I, I, uh, I have some sympathy towards it, but it's not, it's not where I would like to go. Um, however, a crisis like this it does expose certain redundancies. Um, we have become so efficient in many ways as a result of technology. Amazon is actually changing the world. They're making things much more efficient and they are taking out huge numbers of, of industries. What, whatever Walmart did to local businesses uh, a decade or two ago, Amazon is doing that times 100 today. So there is, there is a sense where technology is quickly making a lot of work uh, redundant, uh, unimportant, hard to justify. You and I know that these, these debates have been going on in economics from yeah. the Luddite era onward. Um, however, they, they seem to have uh, some potency now. Um, do you see possibilities of a changed world a decade or two hints where people maybe don't work a large part of the population doesn't work and you go to sort of universal basic income kind of policies do you think that's a possibility okay let me say two things first of all i think uh 
a universal basic income as a which is not as a replacement for existing welfare programs uh, can be made attractive but that's not really what we're talking about here what we're talking about is um, more extreme a I call it like the Vickies and the Thetes model because there's this um, um, this uh, science fiction book, The Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson, in which he uh, projects a, uh, a very extreme class system where the Vickies or the Victorians work very hard, uh, make a lot of money and have uh, very exotic goods and services. And the Thetes are uh, a lower class that uh, because of technology is able to live a, a, you know, to have all their basic needs fulfilled and have some crude forms of entertainment, uh, but doesn't have a, uh, a very high, you know, they're, they're culturally very low um, and, uh, and they have low status. Um, he wrote that book, I think in early nineties and I've just as you as I've watched developments play out, I feel like we've we've been heading in that direction, and I think that's kind of what you're alluding to, or that that would be uh, where, where things seem to be headed in, in what you're talking about. And I think that's a very difficult world to navigate because no matter what, uh, you have this acute separation in status uh, between people who are um, sort of doing the high level uh, software development and business development, and then uh, people who, whose work, as you say, is becoming more and more redundant. Um, yeah, I don't know how you, I, 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 I don't think you, that a universal basic income is sufficient to deal with the status issues that that raises. And so I don't ha have a good, a good story for that. Uh, you know, the, the science fiction stories never are, are utopian. <laughs> yes. Well, another way that it would resolve it is, well, the way that it has historically resolved is uh, roles open up that were not foreseeable by the previous generation. So you have things like right. in the modern era, personal chefs and di different, different whole criteria Absolutely. of employment that didn't previously exist. And, and so you- Absolutely new, you know, the history is that as old middle-class jobs disappear, newer and better middle-class jobs do appear. And if, uh, and, so, and typically it's hard to see those, it seems to be harder, easier to see the ones that are, that you're gonna lose than to be able to foresee the ones that you're going to gain, and so if you if you go by that, if that continues, then then we really wouldn't have to worry that we we don't know what the new middle class jobs will be in 2025 or 2030, but they'll be there and they will turn out to be better than the middle class jobs that we might be losing today. So. I promised 60 minutes. Can, can I get 10 minutes, a hard stop 
at 10 minutes. Okay. Is that possible? Yes. Okay. Um, explain the origins of your three axes model of political discourse. And do you think it has applications to coronavirus? Okay. So, um, so what I noticed uh, back in 2013 is that a lot of political rhetoric wasn't intended on changing anyone's mind. You weren't going to change the mind of the people on the other side. You weren't trying to change people on the mi minds of your own side. In fact, what you're trying to do is close the minds of people on your own side. So very odd things. Another way to put it is that the rhetoric is in demonization mode, not persuasion mode. So if I'm on a high school debate team, I don't insult you personally. I try to take your best arguments and match them with, with my best arguments, match them against my best arguments. That's persuasion mode. But what we have is demonization mode, people putting each other down. And then I came up with these three axes of demonization. So if you're a conservative, your axis is civilization versus barbarism. And you, if somebody disagrees with you, you accuse them of being on the side of barbarism. If you're a progressive, it's an oppressor-oppressed axis. And if somebody disagrees with you, you demonize them as being on the side of the oppressors, you know, calling somebody a racist or whatever. And if you're a libertarian, you demonize, you have the liberty coercion axis and you demonize somebody as being uh, favoring the use of coercion. So in this virus crisis situation, and I've been guilty of this myself as a libertarian, you demonize people as just being making excessive use and expansion of state power and coercion. So you see something like, you know, orders to shelter in place from the government and they drive libertarians crazy. I mean, as a libertarian, I don't have a problem if you decide you don't want to go to a restaurant or you want to close your restaurant as a business owner, that's fine. But the government shouldn't be telling people uh, what to do about that. And so again, you know, so for libertarians, that's the way this, these lockdowns hit them, at least when they come from government officials. Um, and so, you know, they'll demonize the opponents. Um, on, uh, it's, it's interesting that when this first started, conservatives seemed to want to, uh, uh, you know, kind of support the idea of, of uh, people staying home in lockdowns, uh, and then they've moved away from that. Progressives uh, or originally didn't like any policy moves on the virus. They called them racist. You, I don't know if you remember, but back in January and February when uh, people were talking about, you know, keeping the, the virus from in China from reaching the United States, the progressive politicians were like marching through the Chinatowns and, you know, going through parades saying, oh, you know, we're perfectly safe here. Everybody come out. Don't, you know. Uh, that has since reversed, and progressives now think that um, you know that we uh, that you know that they're now more supportive of the lockdowns than conservatives. So go into that. So anyway, the, so I think the three-axis model has uh, has some use in this, but I think more generally than the 
phenomenon of people demonizing opponents and not arguing persuasively uh, is very widespread. And I think it's very much reinforced by the social media environment where on Twitter, everyone, that's just a cultural norm is to uh, just attack people and not, uh, not try to think through carefully and not try to give the person, talk about the other person's best arguments or their best point of view, you know, the, the logic of their point of view. You just try to put them down. Do um, you think, um, do you think that this environment, this Twitter environment has something to do with the fact that libertarians have not asserted themselves very vigorously in this crisis? I, I have found that, that uh, libertarians have stayed somewhat quiet during this crisis. And I was watching an interview with Tyler Cowen where he suggested that that, that is true and, and that maybe it's, it's been damaging to libertarianism. Well, the, my first reaction to the situation was that you know, to see this exponential curve growing, to see that clearly we would have to change behavior if we were going to uh, slow the spread of the virus and avoid the, um, you know, overwhelming the healthcare system. And that's, you know, that, that implies sort of government action. But it, over time, I saw that, well, maybe there are other things we can do other than have government order to people to shelter in place. You know, maybe we, people can all go out and wear masks or other forms of face covering, and that would be just as effective. Or maybe we can just let people make their own decisions, and a lot of people, you know, people won't do crazy things, and obviously they're canceling big conferences and big sporting events, doing that without government telling them what to do. And then seeing all the socialist economic policies that the government was enacting. So it kind of revived my, liber my own libertarianism. And in fact, it, it's probably become, uh, I've probably become more vehement about it. Um, no, I, 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 I do see this crisis as, uh, as really driving libertarianism out of the political discussion. Um, and I think it's unfortunate. Uh, and some of it may be the media environment in some sense, but I think it's probably just because of the way people react to national news now. They, they take everything personally because it's showing up on the same screen that they, same telephone screen that they use to talk to their friends on. So they don't separate what's going on nationally from their personal lives. And I think that that really cuts against a libertarian point of view. People just become so anxious about it and they, the desire to, for the government to be their parent, I think becomes stronger in this kind of social media environment than it would have before. I'm going to do an unusual thing. I'm going to give you uh, two options for the last question, and you have to choose which of the which of okay. the two questions you'd like to tackle. Um, the first is regarding the cost of the lockdown. 
because we might be entering into an environment of rolling lockdowns, probably, probably not of the same severity as this recent lockdown, but we might have rolling lockdowns of some types. It, it does seem important to think about, okay, what is the benefit of the lockdown, which is mostly preventing the spread of the virus? And then what is the cost of the lockdown? I would, I would be very interested in hearing your description of how you might think of the cost of a lockdown. So that's, that's question one. The other question is, um, you've talked a lot about the socialist style policies that have been enacted in response to the, to the virus. How do you see the economy coming off of life support, coming off of constant bailouts, extreme deficit spending, et cetera? So right, I'll, I'll take the first one. Okay. <laughs> They're both interesting, but I'll take the first one. The, um, I think when we talk about lockdown, I, I want to be careful to separate the decisions that people would make as individuals from the incremental restrictions that the government would place on. I think the incremental government restrictions change behavior only a little bit. I think that if the restrictions were lifted tomorrow, there are still a lot of people who would not engage in the sort of activities they would have engaged in in January. So, you know, the government does not have the option of forcing me to go to a hockey game or to even to go to a restaurant. It can only give me the option to do so. And so, that that's one thing. So the um, I think the economic costs are going to come primarily from these individual decisions. That is my decision about you know what events I'll go to and what events I won't go to. And so the, a lot of that economic cost is unavoidable. I think that the benefits of both our individual actions and government actions are quite limited. Okay, we all wish that we would not get a severe case of the crisis, of the virus. Um, but we don't really know what makes the difference between getting a mild case and a severe case, other than like, you know, people who are older tend to get it more severe. Um, what we can do with lockdowns or with our individual behavior of avoiding events is delay getting the virus. So I, I have a choice of getting the virus sooner or later and I can affect, and that choice can be affected by, by my, my actions. But unless I'm going to stay a hermit for years, uh, I don't have a choice about not getting the virus. Uh, it's just a matter of sooner or later. So I don't think that the benefits are, are as much as people want to intuitive gut feel think. The gut feel is, oh, I, I won't get the virus if I stay at home. But the right reaction is, well, sooner or later, you're going to have to go out. And sooner or later, you're probably going to get the virus. So it's a question of sooner or later. And for many people, they're probably better off getting it sooner, like young people if they get mild cases. And only a few people are better off getting it later. And I, I don't think we're gonna, we are going to see a lot of social benefit 
out of restricting people uh, going out. The only benefit is that flattening the curve, and flattening the curve means getting it later rather than sooner. And I, I don't think there's going to be that much benefit from that going forward. So I don't think we're going to have rolling lockdowns. I think once these are eased up, it'll just be up to individuals. And I think the problem will be that many individuals will be frightened about going out and doing the things that they were doing back in January. Makes sense. Um, where is the best place for people to follow you? Uh, you have your personal website that you mentioned you've kept for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. The blog, arnoldkling.com slash blog. That's, that's the best place. Beautiful. All right. Well, I really, really appreciate this time. This was great. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks very much.